Hello, my name is Ray, and I'm one of the pastors at Willingdon. Today I have my California mug with me because it's home to one of the most beautiful highways in the world, Highway 1, along its rugged coastline. In fact, on the back of the mug, there's a road through a redwood tree. What is the most beautiful highway you have been on? I have with me a book entitled Destination Highways, Northern California, a motorcycle enthusiast's guide to the best 334 roads in Northern California. So many great roads. If you're on a motorcycle, a highway is evaluated on the basis of the quality of the pavement, its twistiness, the engineering of the curves, its remoteness, and the scenery along the road. There's only one problem this year. The board is blocked. We can't get to these beautiful roads. Some amazing highways in Canada are the Sea to Sky Highway be between Vancouver and Whistler, the Icefields Parkway between Banff and Jasper, and the Cabot Trail around Cape Breton in Nova Scotia. Other world examples are the Milford Road in New Zealand, the Almafi Coast Drive in Italy, and the Tianmen Mountain Highway in China, nicknamed the Heaven Linking Avenue. Is there a road on earth leading us to heaven? We are all searching for a way to life or creating our own way. Needing a way is just inherent to being human. Our sermon series this fall is entitled The Beautiful Way, based on Matthew chapters 3 through 5. What does this way look like? Is there an on-ramp? The Gospel of Matthew, it opens with people from around the world choosing this way. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, wise men from the east, and Joseph. About 25 years after Joseph, Joseph chooses to return to Israel from Egypt with Mary, his wife, and his infant son, Jesus, a prophet appears in the Judean wilderness. We read in Matthew 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So who is John the Baptist? He's calling people to change their minds, actually their whole way of life. Why would people need to change so radically? Do you and I need to change anything? Why is he wearing camel's hair and a leather belt and eating locusts? Is that what it means to enter the beautiful way? To turn from burgers and fries to locusts and honey? John's clothing was just normal dress and his food common fare for people living in the desert. The locust, a large grasshopper, was prized as nourishment, usually kept in water and salt like our prawns, and sometimes dried in the sun and preserved in honey and vinegar. Does that make you hungry? The desert locust is still eaten today by people in the Middle East and Africa. One day an African friend of mine served me some grasshoppers as a snack. If you've never tried them, roasted locusts taste like crunchy french fries. They're high in protein. For the Jews, John's appearance would have evoked images of the prophet Elijah, who appears in a book of Israel's history, 2 Kings. He also wore a garment of hair and a leather belt. 
the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, prophesied that one like Elijah would prepare the way of the Lord. What was he talking about? In the time of Malachi, the people of Israel were wearying God with their complaints about his indifference to evil and injustice. And God says in response in Malachi chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. 400 years later, when an angel appears to John's father, Zechariah, the angel identifies his son to be born as the messenger of Malachi. Luke chapter 1, verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see, John the Baptist, he bridges the Old and New Testaments. He's the last in a long line of Jewish prophets and prepares the way for the ultimate prophet, Jesus. Later, in Matthew chapters 11 and 17, Jesus himself identifies John the Baptist as the Elijah who was to come. You see, Matthew presents John the Baptist as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. In verse 3, we read this, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John is the messenger preparing the way for Jesus. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley, valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In Isaiah's prophetic vision, valleys are lifted up, mountains flattened, a straight, level highway is prepared for the way of the Lord. You see, Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh. Behold your God, Isaiah writes to the cities of Judah in verse 9. God has come in the person of Jesus. God's glory, his beauty will be revealed in and through him. The time for repentance, for revival, for reset has come. It's time for people to prepare their hearts for the coming of the king. The beautiful way, it requires us to prepare our hearts for something entirely new. In the desert, John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the desert, you get away from the noise of daily life. You can remove the hindrances and obstacles that, so that you can meet God. The desert is a place of new beginnings. John the Baptist calls his hearers to, to repent. Repent? 
We often think of the guy on the street corner with a poster board screaming something at passersby. Sometimes really off-putting images come to mind. That's really unfortunate because repent is a great word describing something we all need to practice to follow the beautiful way. You see, we all sin. We all have beliefs, thought patterns, values, and behaviors that that hinder us, that bind us, that imprison us, even destroy us. And we need to be set free. We have thoughts, attitudes, and actions that separate us from God, from ourselves, from others around us. And we need to repent. To repent is not just to feel bad or, or say we're sorry. To repent is not to do penance, to, to try to pay for our sins by inflicting suffering on ourselves. To repent is to change our whole way of living, our beliefs, our thought patterns, our values, our behaviors. It's to turn from ugly, destructive ways to the beautiful way. Allow me to illustrate. Here's a story you may have heard me share at another time. One day I came home from work. I was really frustrated before I came through the front door. One of my daughters, she was five at the time, was doing something that irritated me. And I just expressed my anger. After a few minutes, I realized that I had wronged her. So I went back to say I was sorry. She just looked up from her toys and said, Dad, I don't want you to say you're sorry. I want you to change. Oh. I needed to change. I needed to learn to recalibrate before entering the house if I was coming home from a stressful, frustrating day at work. I needed to rest for a minute to ask God, okay, why am I so stressed? Why am I angry? Why am I frustrated? I needed to ask the Lord to show me the beliefs, the thought patterns that were influencing my emotions and would determine my behavior as I passed through the front door. I had to invite Jesus to shine his light on on his truth, on the darkness of my heart, and show me what I should believe, how I should think, what I should value, and how I should behave. Sometimes it just meant sitting in the car for five minutes to do a reset. And perhaps you say, I just don't have time to do that. Actually, we don't have time to not do it. Because the price we pay in relational breakdown costs us much more than the time, a few minutes prior to returning home. In fact, our children may need years to recover from our anger. Describing repentance, the New Testament theologian D.A. Carson writes the following, I quote, What is meant is a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action. In summary, when we repent, we humble ourselves before God, and we decide to turn from our previous way of being, our distorted beliefs, our unhealthy thought patterns, our misplaced values, our misguided behaviors. We turn from our sin, and we choose to enter the beautiful, life-giving way of Jesus. It's as profound and all-encompassing as culture change. The beautiful way is the way of a new kingdom culture on earth. Now, what is meant by kingdom? John the Baptist proclaims, the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has come near. In other words, it's not 
coming, but has already arrived. There's an urgency to his message. A response is expected. When we speak of kingdom, what comes to your mind? King Arthur around his, uh, and, and his round table? The Lion King? Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll? The whimsical lion of The Wizard of Oz? The Netflix series, The Crown? In Canada, it would be natural for us to think of British royalty. The royal family is, is worthy of occasional interest. They remind us of our history. But the queen is a distant sovereign with little power and influence, a sovereign who can say a nice word now and then, cut the ribbon at a sporting event, say a word of comfort in a crisis, but has little power to govern and effect change. What would John's audience have had in mind when they heard the words, kingdom of heaven? His hearers were Jews. They would recall vivid images, a new heaven and a new earth, the regathering of the scattered people of Israel, the beginning of a new and transformative relationship with God, a time of justice and peace around the world. The fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Moses, and David. In Matthew chapters 1 and 2, we see signs of the kingdom of heaven drawing near. Jesus is presented as a direct descendant of Abraham and David. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. The angel announces to Joseph, Jesus' father, he will save people from their sins. Jesus, in the words of the wise men from the East, is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the new Moses coming out of Egypt to establish a new kingdom, a whole new way of being, the beautiful way. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. It's interchangeable with the kingdom of God. A better translation of this phrase would be the kingship of heaven or the rule of heaven. You see, the term has dynamic power, influence. It's not static. The kingdom of heaven is about the rule of heaven coming to earth. In other words, the God of heaven is establishing his sovereign rule on earth as it is in heaven. So when John the Baptist says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is saying heaven's culture is being brought to earth. How is that happening? Where is that happening? In Jesus. In Jesus, God's promised reign is beginning. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we see Jesus proclaiming exactly the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has come near. The hope for rule of God and the hope for salvation of the entire human race has indeed arrived. Jesus is bringing the culture of heaven to earth. His submission to the Father, his way of thinking, his values, his actions reveal the culture of heaven. He is the visible embodiment of God's sovereign rule, fully present. The beautiful way is the way of King Jesus. In verse 5, we see a move of God Verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Since the time of Malachi, 
the last prophet of the Old Testament. 400 years have passed. People have been waiting for God's kingdom, crying out for it. John the Baptist's message of the kingdom of heaven has come near, reaches city dwellers and rural communities across Judea. Crowds of people are coming from a wide area to the lower Jordan River Valley, just north of the Dead Sea, a hot and arid place. John's message has raised enormous expectation. The Spirit of God is on the move. John is baptizing scores of people in the refreshing waters of the Jordan River. To baptize what just means to immerse. As they go under the water, people are owning their sin. The water symbolizing the cleansing away of sin. It's like walking through the Red Sea and coming out on the other side, turning from the gods of Egypt to the true God, Yahweh. People are identifying with John's call for people to remove the obstacles from their lives that might keep them from aligning their hearts with God and surrendering every aspect of their lives to his rule. So John's hearers are turning from the kingdom of self-rule and saying yes to the rule of heaven. It's revival time. Are we waiting for a move of God in our day? In verse 7, we read this. But many, sorry, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Pharisees and Sadducees show up. Who are they? We'll get to that in a second. This summer, I stopped at a gas station in the Rockies. I was alone on my motorcycle, and suddenly a pack of about 25 Hells Angels swarmed into the gas station on their motorcycles and literally took over. Not one of them looked at me. I calmly finished filling my tank and pulled my bike out of their pack quietly. See, the Hell's Angels, they represent a culture, a way of thinking, tribal behavior at its best. What kind of tribe were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were a community popular with the common people. The 613 laws of the Old Testament were not enough for them. Their lives were characterized by strict adherence to an extensive oral tradition, seeking to cover every aspect of daily life. Nothing was left uncovered. Their passion was to be blameless under the rule of the law. They sought to live separate from sinners, be ritually pure. In their minds, if anyone was righteous before God, they were. The Sadducees were a small group of aristocratic religious elite composed of wealthy priestly families. They were separate from the common people, known for being proud and unfriendly. They derived their authority from the religious activities around the temple. Good religious people, right? John calls these two tribes a brood of vipers. Craig Keener, a biblical scholar, argues that in the ancient world, vipers were often thought to kill their mothers. So the phrase, in effect, means mother killers. Not even close to being politically correct. These people of rules and regulations, rhetoric and ritual, religious activity and pedigree are sneaky and lethal. They become Jesus' primary 
opponents. The Pharisees and Sadducees resist the beautiful way. John asks them, who warned you to flee the coming wrath when in fact you have no interest in changing? You see, they have come to make an assessment of John and his message. They're not repenting. They're not turning. They're not confessing. They're not getting baptized. They do not speak the language of heart change. They're blinded by religiosity and pride. Jesus will say to them, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They would say, why do we need to change? We are the true children of Abraham. We are the rightful heirs of the promises of God. We could not be more in. We have no need to choose the way of the kingdom. We are chosen, not only chosen, but choice. John says to them, God is able from these ordinary stones in the river to raise up children for Abraham. You are unfruitful trees ready to be cut down. If John were in BC, he would say, you're infested with pine beetle and you don't even know it. Your only value is to be cut down and burned. Repent. Being on the beautiful way is not about a religious label or affiliation. It's not about being Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Baptist, Pentecostal, or even Mennonite. <laughs> it's not about belonging to an ethnic group, Jew or otherwise. It's a matter of the heart. The beautiful way has nothing to do with religious and ethnic pride. John could have been proud. John was honored with a unique prophetic role. He was the most sought-after preacher in centuries, a great representative of the Jewish prophetic tradition. Crowds were descending on the Jordan River to be baptized. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, so many were going to see him that government leaders feared a popular uprising but we see no ethnic or religious pride in him. John said in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He said to the crowds, clamoring to hear him, to see him. Jesus is greater, more powerful. His sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Taking off the master's sandals was a task too low, even for the lowest disciple. John was humble. He knew who he was and what his role was. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. He was a prophet preparing the way for the king. In the Gospel of John, he says to his followers, he must increase, but I must decrease. He refused to put himself on a par with Jesus. When we have our eyes on Jesus and know God's purposes, we understand our role in the grand story of God. If we have our eyes on ourselves and are focused on our aims, our agenda, we will engage in self-promotion and miss our calling. As I heard James Houston, former professor at Regent College, say, so many make a career of the crucified. 
In other words, they build their fame and personal empires on the back of the one who gave his life. Could anything be more disturbing? John points to Jesus and Jesus alone. Everything is to be made straight and level for his coming. When Jesus is present, the kingdom of heaven will be present. He will embody the culture of heaven. He will reveal the beautiful way. He will be God with us, Emmanuel. John says, my baptism is a baptism of preparation to prepare your heart for his rule. My baptism calls you to turn from sin to God. Jesus' baptism will be so much greater because he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, verse 11. New Testament theologian D.A. Carson comments that spirit and fire should go together. What is meant is something like spirit fire. If Carson is right, John is speaking of purifying fire, not destructive fire. Jesus' baptism will be a spirit fire baptism that purifies and refines, that regenerates and gives life, new life, in essence, a new heart. When the Spirit of God is present, the transforming seeds of culture change reside in the human heart, bearing the fruit of love, peace, and and justice. Those who repent of self-rule and turn to Jesus receive the Spirit of God. They are cleansed, reborn, and empowered by the Spirit. They become full members of the new kingdom, no matter where they come from. The beautiful way is the way of spirit fire, giving new life and, and transforming hearts. One more thing needs to be said about this way. John declares in verse 12, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is a winnowing fork? A winnowing fork was used at harvest time to toss both wheat and chaff in the air. The heavier grains of wheat fell to the threshing floor to be gathered. Well, the light chaff was blown away by the wind then swept up and burned when the threshing floor was cleared. The image of the winnowing fork is used figuratively for the separation of those who accept God's rule and those who refuse to submit to him. Essentially, Jesus' coming separates those who want God from those who don't, those who want the beautiful way from those who don't. Those who receive Jesus are included in the gathered harvest, the new kingdom. Those who reject Jesus receive the judgment of unquenchable fire. That is hell. They have chosen to cling to their ways and to live separate from God. Out of love, John warns his hearers, you don't want to be the chaff. Within the new kingdom, we find life. Outside the kingdom, we find death. Entering the beautiful way requires culture change, a whole new way of being. Where should we see this most clearly? We should see it in the disciples of Jesus, the church, who live the culture of heaven. 
If we as disciples repent in an ongoing, intentional way, then the power, truth, and beauty of the kingdom will be ever more evident in our lives. Nothing in our postmodern, post-Christian, post-truth culture comes anywhere close to the beauty of Jesus' culture. If you're a follower of Jesus, do you live with Jesus as king, ruling over every area of your life, or do you live as if he were a distant royal sovereign from England with no real power to govern your life? Are you praying for a move of God in our day, in your life? In the 1940s, Professor Orr, a theologian at a university in England, took his students to the former home of John Wesley. John Wesley was one of the great reformers of the Church of England in the 1700s. Wesley would study, preach, and pray that revival would break out in England and spread to other parts of the world. In the time of Wesley, there was a powerful move of God. Many came to faith. Followers of Jesus went through profound, deep renewal. The impact of that revival transformed British society. So Orr took his students to Wesley's home, showed his students the the kitchen, then the study. Being students, they were enamored with Wesley's books and uh, his study notes that were kept there. They went to his bedroom, and one student noticed on one side of the bed two small, well-worn patches in the floor. The student asked, What's that, Professor Orr? Orr explained that those patches were the spots where Wesley would kneel to pray for revival for hours each day. Orr ushered the students back to the bus, But when he counted the students, he noticed that one was missing. Or went back to the kitchen, he wasn't there. To the study, wasn't there. And then up to the bedroom. And there he saw one student kneeling by the bed. And he was able to hear him praying, Lord, would you do it again? Would you do it again, Lord, and would it begin with me? Professor Orr put his hand on his shoulder and said, It's time to go, son. And rising from his knees was Billy Graham. And then God did it again. Are we praying, Lord, do it again, and may it begin with me. Lord, do it again. Jesus the King will never allow himself to be inserted into our lives to just support what we're doing. Following Jesus requires a complete reorientation. It's submitting every aspect of our lives to his authority and direction. It is repenting of every hint of independence in our souls and opening all that we are to his spirit fire. It's praying for revival, for heart change each and every day. It is praying for the kingdom of God to come. Jesus did not come to just prop us up. Jesus came to give us new life. So if you're a follower of Jesus... Pray with me right now. Jesus, we ask you to do it again. Lord, we pray that you would revive us, renew us. Oh God, may there be a profound heart change in us. May we live the change that you desire on earth. 
Oh God, may we reflect who you are. May we love you with all that we are and love those around us as you would have us love them. Lord, do it again in our day. By the power of your spirit, we pray in your name, Jesus. If you have never made that decision to follow Jesus, you've never decided to enter the beautiful way, but you want to do that today, you know that you need heart change, that you need new life, that you need all that Jesus is offering to you, and he's offering to you a changed heart, forgiveness of your sin, a new relationship with God, a new way to relate to the people around you. He's offering not only life now, but life forever. So if you would like to just surrender your heart to Jesus today, today is your day and you sense God drawing you to pray, then pray with me. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus to earth to reveal who you are. And I thank you, Jesus, for coming. I thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin upon yourself. Thank you for paying the price for my sin, the price I could never pay. You took it upon yourself on that cross in Jerusalem. You died in my place so that I might have life so that I may be forgiven for my sin. And so, Jesus, I'm turning from my sin, from my way of living, from my independent ways, from my thoughts, from my beliefs, from my values, from my behavior, to your way. And I invite you, Jesus, to enter my life by your Spirit. I ask you to empower me, to equip me, to live as you would have me live. Jesus, I want to follow you from this day on. Thank you for gifting me with eternal life. Thank you, Father, for this new relationship with you. I praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I'd encourage you to talk to a friend that follows Jesus, or you can um, click that button, I commit myself to Jesus, that digital hand raised there on the screen. Click that button. We would love to connect with you and encourage you on your journey. God bless.